0: Welcome to the What's Up With Dots podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. In this episode, I speak with Ani Mercedes, CEO, founder, and impact producer at Looky Looky Pictures. We talk about her work, what exactly impact producing is, and her philosophy of leadership. Because, amongst many things, she is committed to teaching filmmakers financial literacy, and she's a hustler, this episode's song is Cardi B's Money. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in May 2020. I've always kind of begin these conversations with how we met. Um, so um, I was um, asked to come to the New Orleans Film Festival and participate in the inaugural Firelight Impact Producers Lab. And that is where we
1: met. Yes, that's how we met. Um, I was a Firelight Impact Producer Fellow uh, with Firelight Media. Um, that program was started by Sonia Childress. And we had a retreat where guests came in and spoke to us uh, all across the field about their work. Um, and you were one of them. And we uh, we first met there and connected in New Orleans.
0: And then a few months later, um, I was on your podcast, uh, the Thriving Filmmaker podcast. Talking about um, grant writing and fiscal sponsorship, and then a, probably a few weeks later, I reached out to you and said, "Hey, I want to learn more about Impact. Can I work a few hours for you with you and look at look pictures?" And you're like, "What?" And then you said, "Yes." It's been
1: over two, two years, years now? almost two yeah. years in June or July, whenever your work anniversary is. Yeah. No, when you when you first reached out to me, I was just like, "What?" Tony Bell, the Tony Bell, wants to work with me? What is happening? You're amazing. You're so uh, knowledgeable and experienced and just can do truly anything you want. I was so excited when um, I heard that you were going to start this podcast. You're just a wealth of knowledge and positive energy and encouragement. And so when you reached out to me, I was like, why (laughs) is she reaching out to me? (laughs) Learn about impact. And I was just like, barely out of the fellowship. I had done like one project, maybe, maybe two, and and then you're like, can I just apprentice with you? I was like, uh, uh, no, I'm hiring you. What are you talking about? We're gonna yeah, I'm going to hire you and give you money <laughs> to yes. do the
0: work. I was like, ah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think actually to that point, part of one of the things I'm really passionate about is um, financial sustainability. And part of why um, I started The Thriving Filmmaker. Um, Thriving Filmmaker is an educational resource that has courses, webinars um, for filmmakers. And like as you mentioned, you were on um, one of the shows talking about fiscal sponsorship. I, I think that I went through a lot of internships that were unpaid or didn't have a stipend or anything like that um, for a very long time. And Right out of uh, college, I decided that I was going to figure out um, a way to live a financially right. sustainable life. Um, uh, I don't know <laughs> how. <laughs> well, as soon as uh, as soon as college came out of my mouth, I was like, "Wait, maybe this is taking a different direction than than you want." But I'm no, happy to share. this is part of what I wanted too. to
0: um, talk to you about because. You are so um, among the many things that you're passionate about is financial literacy among filmmakers. And working with you has really helped me in my near. Middle age, like, oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> really, like, re- think about my finances to get myself together. Because, like, a lot of artists are kind of adverse to that, even though we don't use the phrase show business in documentary. I think we really need to because we are artists, i.e., it, but it also is a business. And um, I think a lot of artists and filmmakers yeah. have a lot of fear around that. So yes, so talk about Thriving Filmmaker a bit and your work around that and in your conversations with you and presentations I've seen, you really kind of, in a way, and you probably don't address this directly, but you remove the shame around money. And because a lot of people have around shame around lack of money.
1: Thriving Filmmaker's intention is to make people have peace uh, in their finances, um, specifically filmmakers. But let's put a pin in that for a second and talk more broadly. In the United States, there was a survey done um, by J.P. Morgan Chase that said um, people are more comfortable talking about death than they are talking about personal finance. I grew up in a household um, with a solo parent who had three kids. Uh, I'm, my heritage is Dominican. Uh, My family immigrated here when I was five years old, and my mother had to figure out um, this whole new way of life, the immigrant experience. And there was a lot of uh, financial struggle and and I think just financial karma that uh, we inherited as a family that um, planted a seed in me to want to change that. So as I was going through college, I decided I'm going to become financially literate figure out how to uh, live a life that isn't in debt. Um, I'm not uh, afraid or ashamed or um, feel just not confident about my finances. So when I left college, I was um, a teacher for two years the Teach for America program. And I lived home at home during that time and saved So I was back in my childhood bedroom uh, working as a teacher, kindergarten and second grade teacher, and um, saving as much as I could during that time so that after those two years, I could um, just do whatever I wanted for a year. I basically saved enough so that I can live for one year. And this was 2010. So it was under, it was probably like $15,000, and I just was really, really savvy and resourceful, mm-hmm. um, like many filmmakers are, like many creative entrepreneurs and artists are anyway. Right. And in that time, I, um, I explored um, social justice and my interest in social justice and film, mm-hmm. um, but also uh, the arts broadly. I took six months to just dive into social justice. I ended up actually getting an internship um, at the White House under the Obama administration in 2009. And what were you doing for them? I was on the scheduling and advance uh, department, which is the department that runs the president's schedule and travel um, and will travel in advance of the president in order to prepare events. So I was there uh, in the White House for four months. And then I was also a community organizer. Um, and like a super volunteer on both campaigns um, which is what led to the White House and after that I had the opportunity to um, go to Hawaii and just figure out the the film arts side. So these two passions had always been part of my life social justice and arts but I was like, how do I put them together like how there has to be a way um, I know story is really important and I know that uh, social it can, um, be used as a tool to uh, change the world and um, help people change the world A tool to help people change the world. And um, when I was in Hawaii, it was the total opposite. Of the White House. I was like a PA getting coffee. Whereas in the White House, they're like, you'll never get coffee for anyone. And we didn't. It was like, we were doing work. Wow. You're learning. Uh, yeah, we were learning. But I also want to say that that was unpaid. The White House internship was unpaid. Mm. And um, the the money I saved by living at home enabled me to do that. So I would not have been able to do a full-time unpaid internship without having uh, saved. And I think that the labor laws in this country should be changed and no one should do unpaid work amen agreed agreed going back to what i was sharing so i was in hawaii i was like working at a camera store which is super cool if you're ever in in hawaii filmmakers go to hawaii camera rental go uh, say hi to josh one of the best bosses i ever had um he just i I saw him build a business out of a craigslist ad basically Um, he got some uh, old gear from a friend friend of a friend just like a 5d like mark one <laughs> and tons of lenses and he started renting them out on Craigslist and within a year he had a storefront he had wow. way more gear mm-hmm. It was probably maybe his second employee and um I worked in Hawaii for a year and just really that was an entrepreneurial experience for me because he was I, I saw um, him make decisions in a very nimble way, and and he was just like, so thoughtful and so respectful, and just like so such a great it's um, such a great boss to to be around in like this tiny camera store. So I went from like really like the White House, very infrastructure bureaucracy, all this stuff, to, like very 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 scrappy startup, but in Hawaii, yes, <laughs> yes in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Hawaii part was incredible. It, there were pros and cons to that. Um, I was very, very far from home. I didn't have a network, things like that. Right. But mm-hmm. um, so I decided to um, leave Hawaii mm-hmm. and go to graduate school because I thought it was the responsible expect, like the thing you're supposed to do. Right. When I was in college, um, I went to the University of Chicago, and something like uh, three out of four undergrads have a, a, a post. Um, post-grad degree so you get a master's or a phd so it was like this you're supposed um, to do that yeah you are supposed to do that it was like already like even when i was in college i got a fellowship that would have paid for a phd when i was a sophomore that's awesome but at the same time it's like i, I, I didn't can't even do know
0: this, this. <laughs> wait so what did you major in in college anthropology there are a lot of us anthropologists in this field. Yeah,
1: no, there definitely are. And particularly visual anthropology is something that I was looking at for a master's. Right. But point being, it was an a social expectation, in my social circle, basically, mm-hmm. uh, to go to graduate school. The fellowship I had received when I was a sophomore had uh, a ticking clock. It it basically said, in order to get funds for the PhD, you need to start your PhD within three years, of graduating from college. So I had a three-year window. Two of those years I was a teacher and then the one year was like the explore year was like half DC and then half Hawaii uh, at the camera store and in photography. And actually Hawaii is where Looky Looky Pictures started. I was in that camera store and I remember uh, buying the domain, I think, or showing my boss, like, "Hey, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do photography." So I started doing portrait photography, and I showed him, hey, uh, "Looky, looky, pictures," is what I'm gonna call. It. And he's like, "Oh, that's a great name." I was like, "Yeah, I don't know where I thought of it, but I just thought of it." And yeah, so then I started getting gigs as a PA for photo shoots, and just did a, a ton of photography. That took a backseat to the social expectation of what you're supposed to do, and to graduate school. I made incredible friends. It was, I loved my statistics class because it made me see the world in a whole new way. It was like, uh, when you first learn a language, a new language, and you're, you start speaking and people speak back, you're like, oh my gosh, they understand me. That's how I felt about statistics. And for so long, um, being a woman of color, an immigrant, there were so many expectations. I remember being in high school and um, a teacher saying to me, like something along the lines of like, you." You don't deserve to go to the University of Chicago. Mm. Something like that. And so much of what I think defines being a person of color in the United States is trying to fight against statistics. Right. Okay. So when I had an ownership, an understanding, and a passion for statistics, I felt like I was empowered. Mm. That was the best part of, of graduate school, but then the not so great part <laughs> <laughs> was uh, the loans. So I came out of grad school with like $40,000 in loans plus like 10,000 from undergrad or 20,000. So I had once I graduated, I had like like almost 50,000, something like that right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is 2012. So at the time, that was um, for me very jarring. To start my life in the world with a degree that I wasn't super excited about, I got a master's in public administration. Mm-hmm. And while I was in my master's program, I also worked full time as a virtual assistant. Mm. So that um, helped with like my overhead and my rent um, in school. My so my um, loan would have been higher had I not also worked full time while going to school. Right. And um, the whole time I was in that graduate program, I did like headshots, I did photography on the side. And my, my goal with photography was to take pictures of people that make them see themselves in a different light. Mm. I would only use natural light. Um, most of them were outdoors. But it was really about um, enabling people, especially women, to feel confident in their image and in their body. Right. And a picture of them or or their family, and just when they saw it, I wanted them to say, "Wow, that's me." It was about um, uh, visual empowerment, and it was kind of impactful. now that I think of it, about it,
0: yeah, and I mean, it kind of speaks to your the work that you do with Looky Looky, um, because like I think your um, mythology around creating um, impact is really showing. I think. To kind of paraphrase what you said, says, says, helping to show audiences who they are and what they can do.
1: I think so. Yeah, no, that, I think that that um, mission just has grown and translated into uh, film.
0: Because mm-hmm. what we
1: try to do at Looky Looky Pictures, as you know, is um, enable audiences to feel held, hurt, and seen. Right. And work with films that... Um, do that and whose mission is also to do that. There's one film that we worked with that I think um, the directors sum it up best. Um, the film is called Liana. It's an animated documentary and the directors are Amanda and Aaron Kopp. Um, but they said, we wanted to make uh, a film where the kids in the film are proud of what they see. They're proud of themselves after they see it. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really at the heart of what, what we hope for um, any protagonist who's part of a film, and anyone who identifies with the protagonist after seeing a film. That's the, the kind of work we try to do in, in the films we we try to um, work with in, in some way. Not all of them are like that, and sometimes um, we have different goals for films, but that's really one that we um, we gravitate towards.
0: Um, so I kind of wanted to backtrack again, just for folks who don't know about um, U of Chicago, like, and you, well, U of Chicago and anthropology, because that's kind of like one of the homes of anthropology, because wasn't it Frank Boaz who went there, taught there? So that's kind of like the Holy Grail. So if you are an, um, interested in anthropology and you get into U of Chicago, that is a really good thing. You're joining, you're joining a, um, a lineage there. Um, yeah, so I just want to like give props for that because I'm like, Thanks, Yeah, yeah but, I hadn't
1: even thought you know. about that, but yeah, I guess. so.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it is. No, it is. Like when you, when yeah, you, your, your your intro to anthropology classes. I mean, you learn about those folks out of you in Chicago, like because they kind of like set the, the, the really set the standards as far as like shifting anthropology from like its ra- beginning to shift of anthropology from its racist origins. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, beginning mm-hmm. the process. Not yeah. fully there yet, but yeah, yeah,
1: one hundred percent, like that. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <right. Over> here. <laughs> okay, exactly, exactly. All right. Um, so you mentioned Liana, and um, one of the things that really impressed me about that campaign, and I only I know, I only looked worked a little bit on that, is talk about hustling. I feel like those filmmakers made it probably into like every festival in the world, <laughs> like. And I'll post the link to the website in Liana's website in the transcript, y'all. But like take a look at their screening tour, tour and it is just massive.
1: Yeah. No, Liana was incredible. I came onto that film. That was probably like my fifth, I probably my fifth project, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was at a time where Looky Looky Pictures was like me and you a couple of hours a month maybe i think you came on very at the very end of that but there was a point in liana where it was just me working with the filmmakers trying to figure things out but they had an incredible they had a national theatrical run they got into a ton of film festivals it's a very special film because um it's not too often i think that that two things happen one you have a film that's uh incorporating animation to to tell the story and it's pivotal in the story. It's not just like a, a way to uh, illustrate something you can't capture with the camera, um, like archival you don't have or someone's voiceover. No, it is part, it is the story. The animation is very much a part of that story. And the second piece is that it features children telling their own story, which you also don't see. You see adults talking about kids. Having a background as an educator, it was such a powerful film. Um, for me, and I was so honored and delighted to work with that team. And uh, Amanda and Aaron Cobb um, were really uh, the directors and um, they they were moving forward at a speed that was just incredible, uh, as many filmmakers do. you know, As a visionary, you have to move forward with um, your campaign. And um, something that I think is true within film is that there's a spectrum of director. Um, on the one hand, you want to, you're you're directing your film, and then you get to the point of rollout and premiere. And you're ready to kind of be done sometimes, but you have to make a decision at that point. Do you want how involved do you want to be in the impact and rollout? There's on, on the one hand of that spectrum, you can say, I want to do everything. I want to still I want to do social media posts. I want to do tons of press. I want to be out there on the circuit doing Q&As. I want to fulfill my own screening requests. Or on the other hand, you can say I don't want to do any of that. Let me know when there's a Q&A and I'll be there maybe if I'm interested in that one. I'm going to go and work on a new on a, my next project. So, I think if your intention is to be an independent filmmaker, um and move forward and create a career that really nourishes you, you you kind of have to in this day and age, you know, we're not in 1992 where you can hand it over and a distributor is going to do the work. No, you have to build your audience as well or have a team that's doing that. Right. So you're the director of the film, but you're also the director of the rollout. So even if you have an impact producer, you're still kind of the impact director and have to make decisions about what, what you want the film's message to be, um, who you want to reach, things like that. So I think that, that sometimes um, filmmakers uh, don't want to jump into that. But in Liana's case, the filmmakers were completely embracing of that, and they went to tons of film festivals all over the world. And the the film just touched so many lives of children. There were <laughs> there's uh, one of my favorite videos is in Qatar. Um, I think it was Qatar that. There were a group of kids. There were just field trips to go see this film. And they were just chanting, Leanna, Leanna. Oh, outside. Awesome. Yeah, just like this horde this of kids. It was awesome. And the film was just so powerful.
0: One thing I wanted to talk about is um, something that came up during the Impact producers retreat, which was, and I can't remember saying who said it. Maybe it was Sonia. But she was talking about how um, sometimes how to balance the interests of the filmmaker with the interests of protagonists, particularly if the protagonists are going to be directly involved in the campaign and um, the rollout. And you did mention how what you saw in Liana was you wanted to help create something that the kids in the film would be proud of. So can you talk about sometimes how the interests of protagonists may or may be at odds with the um, with the interests of the filmmaker, and uh, and how
1: that relationship is uh, maintained and balanced. So, one of the first things that we do is ask uh, in in um, preparing to work with a filmmaker is ask them, "What are your protagonist's hopes and dreams?" And sometimes the filmmaker has had that conversation. Sometimes they haven't, but we, in our work at Looky Looky Pictures and our methodology, we um, need them to have that, or we can help facilitate that because this is someone's life story that is um, in their emotions. Sometimes they're vulnerable. um, Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're a public figure or a politician who's out there already. Nonetheless, that conversation has to be had. Um, so we we honestly don't work with films that have not had that conversation, or at least aren't willing to have that conversation with their protagonist. So we haven't actually encountered uh, a time where the filmmaker and the protagonist are on completely different pages. Instead, it's more like, what we've encountered, at least, is that the filmmaker doesn't know how to talk to the protagonist about uh, a rollout, like what, what, what to expect, what's gonna, what are Q and A's, things like that. And we do a lot of briefing of protagonists, um, and it's not media training, like press training. It's because that's that's important too and part of what should happen in supporting protagonists. But it's also just what are you comfortable talking about? Um, is there something, in, are there questions that you want asked? Or are there questions you don't want asked? What do we do if you, uh, something comes up that you don't want to answer? Um, and we do uh, moderator uh, prep. So moderators for Q and A's um, also get like a cheat sheet to, to help guide the conversation. And if there are filmmakers now who need support in that, I encourage you to go to the impact field guide. There's a wonderful, wonderful guidance questions and reflections for you to start thinking about your protagonists and where they are in that matrix of vulnerable and uh, leaders that are public and position. Um, you know, if you have, we had one film, um, building the American dream. Who's the director of that? Chelsea Hernandez, the one and only out of Austin, Texas, but she had families that were in a very vulnerable position and children. And we needed to talk about that. I had another film, um, that went through a lot of that too. We needed to get lawyers and whatnot before the rollout, well before the rollout. This needs to be part of your plan. Um, and then we also have worked on films where there are politicians. Councilwoman um, by Margot Guernsey is is one such example of a councilwoman who um, is a hotel housekeeper uh, who and her journey to run for city council. She's a, a politician out there, happy to do Q and She was the star of the show. She would start singing at Q and A's and people started clapping and singing with her. It was <laughs> so awesome. Yeah, so in that case too, Margot wanted to create a film where the protagonist is proud of their life story. And there are times, you know, I, I also don't want to um, give the impression that every single time it's like a hero's story of a protagonist. Um, there are many films that um, we worked with, too, that um, there are vulnerable moments, there are mo- very emotional moments, there are very tender moments. And that's something to to also be proud of as well. The um, subject in the film, the protagonist of the film, can have goals around that as well in sharing their story. So um, like in Building the American Dream, for example. It was the story of uh, many immigrant families who had either been sick or lost a loved one um, in the construction industry uh, due to unsafe uh, working conditions, um, specifically um, no rest breaks and heat stroke. So very, very vulnerable families in a very, very sensitive and um, uh, serious and and, um, unjust moment. But they wanted to share that. They wanted to share how they organized around that and right. their story, so other families wouldn't um, experience that. But
0: one thing I'm going to talk about when dealing with vulnerable um, populations is at the Firelight Retreat. Um, Twiki Pucci Garcon, who um, worked, who's a producer of the documentary Kiki, came um, to talk about trauma-informed care um, for the protagonists. And that really blew me away first, because I am someone who has experienced a lot of trauma and have been in a lot of therapy for my trauma, specifically trauma specific therapy. And I thought it was incredibly enlightened and wonderful that they had him there to to speak about that. And um, and really, um, it really kind of extends the role of the documentary filmmaker um and essentially what you what you mentioned like past that point of like when the film is done and really developing a, a different relationship with the filmmaker and it when i was listening to him talk it kind of reminded me of the work that um kirby dick and amy zaryk do did around their films the so hunting ground and um invisible war and what they do to prep their protagonists, like essentially from the point where they're approaching them to do the interviews um, for the film, all the way to the point where they're out there on tour, um, because particularly if you're dealing with a topic that's very vul- vulnerable and that's been traumatic for somebody, where it's like a um, unjust death or or something like that, or some kind of assault, for a lot of people, this is a first time when they get interviewed that they've been actually listened to and heard, you know? Um, And then the next step is um, when you're out there on the road, if you're out there promoting the film, you have an audience who's like validating your experience, which is wonderful. But, you know, you have to learn how to talk about things and to develop boundaries. And um, you brought up that some, when a part of your um, work is, essentially educating filmmakers and protagonists on questions they don't have to answer and how to approach that. Um, So can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, Um, first of all, thank you for sharing your experience right now. I think that that's that's something that I will always hold space for and honor. So thank you for that. Twiggy, uh, we should also add, was a producer on Kiki, but is also a protagonist. Yeah, he's in Kiki. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was on Hulu.
0: So check it out. It's a really great, it's about the ballroom ballroom scene in New York. It's
1: incredible. Yeah. One of, um, and I I told Twiggy this, uh, there's a scene where she's looking at the camera, and it's a very, very close, tight shot. And she says right at the camera, or, or I think someone asks, maybe it's the director asking, um, what do you want people to to take away from this film. And she answers it straight to camera. I'm going to paraphrase but it's something like I want uh people to see us and hear us and and just I want my story told. Mm. That was that's part of the film. That goes beyond just talking to your protagonist about what they want. It's direct to camera close up. This is hey audience, this is what I want you to get out of the film. I'm mm-hmm. the protagonist. So, um uh, It's no surprise to me that Twiggy is talking about trauma-informed (laughs) care as a protagonist, just the work that Twiggy Pucci-Garçon and Twiggy's Instagram. Yes! Come on Can we talk about that? Please, that's fabulous. (laughs) Twiggy's incredible. I was so fortunate to collaborate um, with her on Good Pitch uh, USA 2019, Um, but that's a whole uh, other story. Um, But going back to your question about Uh, protagonist stewardship is what we call the service. And to sum it up, it's helping be a liaison for the protagonist throughout the rollout experience. There's a lot that happens before rollout, as you point to um, the interview process. We're not there for that, but the director is, right? The producers are, but we are there for rollout. And um, that's everything from Q&A to briefing before the premiere, to um, having them um, ask any questions at all, um, to talking about what uh, some filmmakers come to us and are like, how do I talk about money with my protagonist? Um, Mm -hmm, And that's actually, uh, we have a whole lesson on that in the Thriving Filmmaker course that um, filmmakers have taken and said that's been really helpful. So that's also part of that. And um, even anything from like transportation and logistics, like children, how do you, t- how, how do you have children on, on the circuit? Um, who, what press do they uh, get or not get? Uh, sometimes we talk to publicists about that too, um, and our collaborators with publicists um, around messaging. Um, we'll even look at uh, um, collateral, so poster design what message does a poster design have? There was one film that we worked on where um, one of the draft uh, versions um, didn't have like the eyes of the protagonist. It was like this uh, play on being invisible. And we suggested to include the eyes because by not having eyes, you're Further emphasizing the message of being invisible. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that helped we were just a thought partner to the director in that. But even that's protagonist stewardship. Right. Imagine being uh having someone follow you around for years and years and years in the most vulnerable, intimate moments of your life. And here's a poster that sums up your that whole experience and you're anonymized in it when what you want is to be seen. So that's what we help both that's helpful to the protagonist in, in you know, in in a certain sense. And I think um really the work Twiggy is doing around trauma informed care and that Sonia who was formerly Sonya Childress was formerly with Firelight, um and really all of Firelight media. Yeah. Yeah, all of Firelight, yes. (laughs) Everything they touch. As well as um Society as well, um, doing a lot of just talk um uh, resources around protagonists. You know, a lot of what I've learned has come from their work. Mm-hmm. From Firelight mm-hmm. and, and doc society and conversations with very uh protagonist first um impact producers like Erin sorensen at third stage consulting like Sahar driver um who's an incredible strategist so um yeah and Erin sorensen was my my first the very first project i worked on she was the impact producer and i was like a coordinator basically and she um Uh, She was on for uh, maybe like three three or four months, maybe six months. Mm -hmm. And I stayed on that project and grew as an impact producer, but she's a mentor for sure.
0: So talk about your work with um, Doc Society and Good Pitch.
1: So Good Pitch is, for those who may not be familiar with Good Pitch, it is an event that takes place all around the world in support of filmmakers. Um, There is no regular cadence. It's not a yearly thing. It's uh, been going on for 10 years. There have been, four, uh, I think, 45 events now um, in over, like, 15 countries. But what uh, what it does is um, enable filmmakers to talk about their projects in a very short pitch, um, a two- to five-minute pitch. And uh, it's an invitation-only event where folks who are coming from all sectors of civic life, um, government representatives, philanthropists, uh, distributors, um, nonprofits, small and and large. And as uh, the filmmaker pitches, uh, after, after they pitch, they are given the opportunity to pledge to those films. And those pledges can range from traditional pledges of just financial resources and support, um all, all the way to like connections. Um, there's there's a famous anecdote about helicopters. Someone asked for a helicopter and their pitch and got a helicopter or got a connection to someone who's a pilot who knows somebody who knows somebody. Um, so much of this work is is like that, I think. Right. And um, the intention is to create partnerships so that those uh, films, when they do roll out, are um are in an ecosystem of support and one thing that i think is really important in rollout is that it's a two-way street yes you want audiences and and partners to use the film to screen the film to see the film but you also have to ask the question what's in it for them what is their win why would they screen the film is that already in their pro? Like, do they already have programmatic initiatives around that? Right. Um, are they already advocating for whatever issues are in your film? Or is that adding work to them? You want to make it very easy and in service of them and their work. Right. Uh, here, I made this film, go use it. It's how can this serve you and listen? That's our first step in really building partnerships um, that are served by films. Right. You know, it's not that the film in and of itself can change the world. It's that people need to do something in order for change to happen. Um, Another way to think about that is before seeing the film, your efforts, marketing efforts are about getting people to see the film. Right. The impact efforts are about getting them to do something afterwards. So many filmmakers in their impact strategy or engagement proposals, have a goal of a certain number of screenings. Screenings in and of themselves are not impact goals. The goal is what happens after they screen it. You know, more traditionally sign a petition, make a phone call, but also it could be um, express themselves and make a work of art about maybe their own trauma or their story or um, plant a tree or um, uh, join an organization that is advocating and that's your key partner and you're in service to them. Um, Call a hotline if they've experienced wage theft. All of that is within the scope of um, possibility. And that is what the change is. It's not necessarily just... um, only screenings. Screenings are a tool, a vehicle to something else.
0: Right, right. And with with that said, I know we've had many, many um, conversations about um, Sonia Childress's article, which we actually interviewed her last week, and um, we talked about a lot. And we didn't talk about that, <laughs> but her article, "Beyond Empathy," and how it informs how it informs your work, because I know um, in conversations that we've had, I've kind of express by a bit of my frustration around being in impact spaces and people places where people are talking about impact where the focus and also the funding is solely on um essentially raising awareness about something for a lot of people um that seems to be enough and i feel like for a lot of folks who are kind of on the ground and and particularly for filmmakers who are within these communities trying to facilitate change, who may not have access to a lot of that funding just because of the way our system is structured, when they are actively trying to do something um, versus versus raising awareness about something because the people, their audiences are already aware about the problem. They want action, but they maybe need some direction on what to do. Can you talk about that a bit and how filmmakers, particularly from um, who are within the communities that they're um, representing, can navigate um, some of that and essentially moving beyond that awareness piece. And I was posting about this, something similar to this on browngirl.mafia's website, and someone brought up like the phrase privileged passivity. Mm. And like when people are essentially... People who are in a privileged space are just happy and feel satisfied with the talking about of something, and like that is where that's where it stops. I have a few thoughts about
1: this. Uh, one is, there are moments where awareness is a goal um, that I think isn't passive, and that's when the decision makers, influencers, stakeholders who have most power in changing an issue are not aware. For example, in the film um, Virunga, there is an oil company drilling in the Congo. There's also civil unrest happening um, while this is happening. And it's one of the few places on earth where there are still silverback gorillas. Uh, One of the goals of that film was to remove that oil company from drilling. Okay. Now, that was essentially hidden. There was um, really any film that has an element of like investigative reporting, even like Citizen Four, for example. Right. Awareness is it's like revealing something is the goal. Right. So that creates um, a cat that can catalyze or maybe not catalyze, even just begin a conversation that isn't being had because something is hidden right
0: um we had also like films like um well there's a film blood diamonds you know from way back when um exactly which actually had an impact campaign before it was called impact campaign but it made us aware of of the 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 diamond industry and how um people were essentially enslaved to that yeah Yeah. right Mm -hmm. right
1: and the communities where that was happening the miners (laughs) digging up diamonds knew this, right, the, the war and the violence that they were experiencing, they were very aware.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: but yeah. the, the um, sometimes external uh, forces, uh, and in that case, the demand for diamonds, the consumer at the other end of that spectrum, of that um, you know, pathway to purchasing, there were Kelly certificates, actually, one of my graduate school. Um, professors was part of the initiative to um, bring about those Kelly certificates and was it an international tribunal. But going back to our point, there are instances where awareness is a goal that can create change if the people who need to be aware are not aware. Right. There are moments where that is a goal that isn't a passive or privilege. it's something that needs to happen in order for um, change to occur. But there are other moments where awareness is, it's its not a hidden issue. It's already in the vernacular. <laughs> um, we know the uh, <laughs> so many things. We know a lot. <laughs> a lot. We know um, <laughs> that wage theft occurs. We know that living in poverty is something that exists within the United States, making a film about the plight of um someone you know who who cannot subsist in the united states we know that that's a problem right we know that essential workers uh are (laughs) facing challenges whether we're in a pandemic or not you know i feel like like um even just this narrative around um being essential we're working with one film now um through the night that that is very powerful um and is I think the opposite of the point that you're making. There is no passivity uh, in that film. It is it is just this um, wonderfully nourishing, soothing, um, glorious film. I like to describe it as like um, I feel like I'm being embraced in my mother's arms when I see it. It's a very just nourishing film, and I it's rare to come across a film like that. I think uh, in the black space and. And also, I'll, I'll just like to say for those who have seen
0: it, um, uh, through the night, um, premiered, premiered was supposed to premiere at Tribeca. I'm not sure. Yes, yeah. it's a selection. It's like it's worth, yeah, uh, a selection. The 2020. Yeah, Tribeca selection. and um, like, it's an incredible film. And I, I, every time I feel, every time Nunu, who's uh, a main protagonist, is talking, it's almost like you're just having a conversation with one of your friend girls. Very casual and very intimate, and um. Really, a love letter to um, those folks who take care of our children, you know, so we can go go to work. And in a way, um, bringing visibility to, um, I would say, essential workers who are probably hidden because obviously we're aware of um, domestic workers and healthcare workers, um, but this film focuses on those the caregivers who take care of their children, and, um, and just incredibly powerful respectful honoring of the caregivers as well as the single moms who are trying to, you know, trying to make it work yeah. and keep us all going.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. And I think, um, to just summarize through the night, through the night is uh, a verite doc. So there's no, um, sit down interviews, it's a verite documentary about a 24 hour child care center in New Rochelle, New York, and two mothers who have children in that center and what they're doing to to subsist um, working multiple jobs um, as solo parents. So that film does not have uh, a passive awareness goal. It is a very actively engaged protagonist first film that uh, is more action than anything else. And especially during this this time where there is a, a narrative around essential workers who have always been essential. I think particularly caregivers with children who are at home trying to um, both work and homeschool and nurture their children, our society is seeing the importance of caregiving and that caregiving is the work that makes all other work possible. In the pre-global pandemic world, that message wasn't as salient as it is post-pandemic. Right. Um, Or during, we're still during. During. Um, Right Mm -hmm. now there is no post um, as of yet. Awareness was less of a goal Mm -hmm. or is less of a goal for that film. I think it's more around changing and shifting narratives that mothering is a a verb. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mothering is an action Mm -hmm. and um, mothering is something that anyone can do. Any caregiver who is involved in the nurturing and upbringing and loving of a child um, is a caregiver and, and is engaged in the act of mothering. And um, the need for communal care, there is an isolation that comes, I think, with mothering in um, the Western world, I would say, that is a departure from all of human history as an act of uh, of solitary uh, strength that doesn't um, involve a network of people. Uh, mothering requires a network of people. Right, and, it takes a village. Uh,
0: you know, yes. it, it does, it takes all of us, yeah.
1: Indeed, so with regards to that, the point of awareness, um, there's a heightened awareness about that, but particularly the communities that the film hopes to serve, communities of, um, of color, and communities where caregivers are within the fabric of leadership in those communities, um, I think they have a salient awareness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the importance of uh, caregiving um, and the critical role it plays in moving our society forward. Um, but but then what is the question? And that's where we get to not being passive but being active. Right. Then what? Um, caregivers need support um, that uh, is not recognized by U.S. Congress, for example. There was a coalition of 500 um, caregiver organizations that came together um, with the leadership of the National Women's Law Center um, and petitioned for um, uh, funds from Congress, but ended up getting like 6% of what they requested. and in addition to that, about 60% of uh, childcare centers, it's um, estimated, um, will suffer financially or will close altogether. Mm, mm-hmm, due to, mm-hmm. um, the pandemic. Yeah. So that film is speaking directly to that. We're partnering um, with some of those organizations and moving to uh, go beyond the awareness piece, but into the action piece. That campaign is still very early in its development at, at this time at the time of this recording but you know, at the heart of that film is to go far beyond awareness and something to know is that it's not out yet and there are efforts in in place that are going to be moving and, and continue even though the film has not had a um official premiere and you know i know that word is a little strange for films that um, we're intended to premiere in 2020 and have a rollout, so right? Yeah, that
0: that that word premiere is has I all kinds of connotations yeah. now, and, and mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of trauma for some people, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, but so, so just kind of getting um, into getting a little deeper. And I mean, I, obviously, I know the que- answer to the question this, but um, you know, this is particularly the work of um through tonight, but also um, you know, Carmen, the main protagonist and councilwoman, um there is this sense, well, this reality that women, the work that is done by women, because we're all primarily talking about women's work, is um devalued. And um, but it is clearly what keeps us going um as a society. And we we see it from those who are like labeled now essential workers. Like we go mostly into grocery stores. Like most of those folks who work there are, are um, women, and you know also like women of color. Um, home, you know, healthcare aides, the folks who work in our nursing homes to take care of our our elderly and um, folks who are infirmed. Um, hospital workers. And I'm like talking about the folks like the janitorial staff, not just like the doctors and the nurses and administrators. Um, So why? And you could give me your anthropological answer. um, Why is it that there there's this devaluing of work that is um, essential to like the, the human experience? And I mean, and I think this is something that happens, that doesn't just happen um, in Western cultures, but also happens like a- across the globe,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. no, in, um, in the United States, women, particularly women of color are disproportionately represented in um, essential work. And um, that's often undervalued. Uh, literally, like compensation undervalued, but also other forms of compensation benefits, um, having the work be uh, seen as uh, as essential and critical to the functioning of an institution. And that leads to making the work invisible and unseen. And almost uh, there's this uh, sense that that work just happens on its own, you know, um, cleaning a hospital or or schools happens after people leave, um, after the children leave, after teachers leave. It happens um, in the third shift um, overnight or um, after close of business hours. Uh, it's made to feel like it happens without anyone's labor.
0: Is there anything you'd like to um, say in conclusion, so it's kind of wrap us up?
1: First, for any um, for filmmakers who are listening to this, um, or anyone listening to this, if you have a story that is either personally your story or a story of someone you want to honor, reflect on how you hope it will eventually, when it's done, or now that it's done, when people see it, how do you want them to feel? Do you want them to feel? sad, reflective, empowered? And secondly, what do you want them to do with that feeling? Sit in that. Just like you do while they're watching the film. Will they laugh? Will they cry? Will they, how will this scene affect them? Think about that for afterwards. And when you think about that person watching, who are they? Build a persona, give them a name, give them an identity. Think about their psychographics more than the other stuff, demographic, geographic. Think about their psychographics. Where are they coming from? Those who are vulnerable or in watching the film could be triggered. What do you want them to think? What do you want them to feel? Think about them. And if you at least have the intention of answering those questions and reflecting on that, you don't need to know the answers. There are impact producers, people like me, um, everyone at Looky Looky Pictures. There's a whole global community Um, reflecting on these and has been part of campaigns, you're not alone. You're not alone in trying to figure out how to make a film and put it in front of audiences. You are not alone, you're not the first one, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Get um, support and advice and the impact field guide is one of the best places to start. It's very in depth. Literally my education in impact was over a weekend, reading the entire thing, um, it's like a hundred pages or something like that, highlighting it. I before any campaign I had worked on, I came across it um, because I was on a film that got into a good pitch, um, and Doc Society puts on Good Pitch. And I read it cover to cover, and I was like, "This is amazing! This is where I belong." Now it brings together social justice and arts. This is this is for me. Go to the Impact Field Guide. Um, a Sahar Driver, who I mentioned previously uh, was someone who compiled that, the version that's there now. It's incredible. It includes a section on shorts. Start there and answer some of the questions there. There's even like an impact um, outline plan that you can start putting together through through that. So you're not alone is the, the main message um, I want people to, to get from this. There's a very beautiful, nurturing, supportive community that wants to use film as a tool to make the world uh, a better place and put it in the hands of people who can use it as a tool.
0: Ani reminds us that filmmakers not only have a responsibility to their craft, but a moral responsibility to the protagonists and communities within which they film. Ask yourself if you're willing to consider the answers to these questions. What are the protagonists' hopes and dreams? How do you want your protagonists to feel when they see themselves on screen? Documentary protagonists are asked to give a lot, including their time, give up their privacy, and emotional energy. A filmmaker who engages in conscientious protagonist stewardship recognizes that they must embrace their own humanity by seeing the totality and complexity of the people and communities on which they turn their lens. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at what'supwdocs.com. That's what'supwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at what'supwdocs. Again, that's what'supwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Schumas and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Rennell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.